If you have a Bible, grab it and meet me in the Gospel of Matthew. It's towards the end of your Bible. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 6, as Lisa read for us today. Um, Please don't dip out immediately after the message. There's some pretty significant announcements I want to reiterate, but I don't want to take up all our time um, doing so. Uh, We've been in this series called The Well, where we have been journeying through this idea of spiritual formation, going deeper into um, the things of the Lord and who God would form us to be as people, as individuals, specifically as Christians, and we've been using um, the prayer that he gave his people in Matthew chapter 6 almost as the framework for that journey. And last week talked about how the petition that we looked at last week and and this petition that we're going to look at this week, they really serve as truth serum. They tell the truth that we're often afraid to admit regarding where we stand in the faith. And and, and this, this petition Forgive us our debts as we, as we have also forgiven those we're indebted to is so weighty that even just Friday as we're just working through the sermon, praying over it, praying over you guys, it became abundantly clear that we weren't going to be able to tackle that petition in just one week. Felt like we would be doing a disservice to the text as well as a disservice to our hearts. And so... We're going to take two weeks and we're just going to look at this petition, okay? This week, if you're looking for a soft title, you could just say, forgive me, okay? Next week, it's going to be, I forgive you. So this week, we're really just going to explore dynamics of forgiveness as it relates to God and us. And then next week, we're going to explore dynamics of forgiveness as it relates to us and others, Now, I plan on being here next week, God willing. You should as well. They're joined together, but for the sake of stewardship of the text and our time, we're taking them bit by bit. There is a single idea that just sits on both of them that I want want to make plain um, now. I think the best way to do it is by starting off this way. My dog, Gambit, is a teenager. Second week with a dog illustration to start us off, all right? And when I say teenager, I mean literally, like he's a teenage dog. He's he's not a puppy anymore, and he's not in that adult space. He's he's an adolescent, large dog. Was driving Serenity to school, as I normally do, uh, and got a call from Diamond, my wife, and she's like, hey, babe, Gambit escaped. And I was like, here we go. So he popped the lock on our gate with his nose, drove home, saw him hanging with this pack of stray dogs in the community. Fast forward to my future with my coming teenagers and community around them. He saw me and we made eye contact from afar. And so he immediately started coming. All right. It's like, thank you, Gambit, for making this easier than what I thought it was going to be. Bring him inside. We have a conversation about not popping locks again. Next day, I, I'm not making this up, yo. The next day, he goes to our trash can, pops open a trash can, trash all over the floor. We wake up to it. I'm like, you don't want to live here anymore. 
I accidentally said it out loud. My kids heard me. Are we getting rid of Gambit? Nah, maybe, right? (laughs) The next day, it happened again. I promise you. He popped open the trash can. The day after that, there was some bread left on the table. He jumped on the table. He destroyed it. Came home, saw all these little crumbs and this old honey wheat bag on the floor. I was like, fam. Right after that, he started trying to move towards me. I mean, he knew he messed up, right? He knew it. And so he tries to snuggle with me. He tries to manipulate me into forgiving him. Didn't work. I'm not the type of person to be manipulated. So I said, nah, fam, go over there. The day after that, I went up to him, and then we had another conversation. I believe dogs understand humans. We talked about the weight of his actions and what needs to be done differently so that he could still be in our house. I think he responded. I say that to say there's something intrinsically true about all living beings. I don't want to compare us to my Rhodesian Ridgeback, so praise God. But there's something intrinsically true about all living beings that when we mess up, when we mess up and we know we mess up, we try to move instinctively towards repair. But like my Rhodesian Ridgeback, often that move towards repair is more like coercion. It's more like manipulation. When we know that we've messed up and we need to repair the relationship, when we know that we're in need of forgiveness, often the first step is manipulative. If you're married, it's doing dishes. If you have a strong relationship with another person, it's making all sorts of guarantees and promises that you're probably going to break. But the first step is consistently, unfortunately, manipulation. And what I want to sit on this week and next week is this idea, extending or receiving forgiveness. It is never, listen to me very carefully, it is never the result of chance. It doesn't just happen. Extending or receiving forgiveness is never the result of chance. It is never the result of coercion. Forgiveness that is meaningful, that creates a meaningful sense of repair where relationships are broken, that's not a product of coercion. You can't manipulate your way into meaningful repair. I can't either. Extending or receiving forgiveness It is never the result of chance. It is never the result of coercion. It is always the result of choice. Always. Always. To extend forgiveness and to receive forgiveness is always the result of choice. Whether I am choosing to give the forgiveness or I'm actually choosing to receive the forgiveness that was offered to me. It doesn't happen by chance. It doesn't happen by coercion. It is always the result of choice. Sit that on this week and next week. The beauty and often the sadness is when you start to explore the dynamics 
of forgiveness as it relates to God and us. I'm going to say this at the end, but it's worth saying it now. God stands willing and ready. He is chosen to forgive. And his choice of forgiveness, he's not manipulated into it. And it wasn't an accident. I have this great idea. I'm going to forgive people who've messed up. No. It was a determined plan to extend that which is most necessary to those who are most undeserving. And what God does is he says, I am willing to forgive. The words, I forgive you, precede, I apologize. The forgiveness that God lays out that is a product, a result of choice is rooted in his heart and it is a reflection of his willingness that he is ready to say, I forgive you before we're even aware of our need to apologize. That is the atmosphere of this petition that we're walking into. The greatness of forgiveness offered by the king of heaven. Hallowed be his name. And so I do want to explore just some dynamics of that forgiveness as it relates to God and us before closing. It'll just be a few ideas that we'll pull out, apply them, and keep it moving. There's a symbiotic relationship between vertical forgiveness and horizontal forgiveness. As Lisa read there at the end, verse 15, but as although symbiotic, so they're wedded together, there is a sequence. And the way that I interact with forgiveness vertically should and must bear out in the way that I interact with forgiveness horizontally. And so we got to start with forgive us. Read with me. We'll read it straight through, and then we'll take it bit by bit, looking at some of these um, dynamics. Y'all still with me? Yes? Amen. Cool. Let's get it. Um, verse 9 reads like this. Our Father in heaven hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Provide for our needs that which is sufficient for the now and the future. And forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father in heaven forgive you. So much going on here. Um, Some of the ideas are implicit. Some of them just kind of, they're just obvious. They just kind of, you know, stare at us. Let's start with an implication, though, an implicit idea. The implication behind the line, forgive us our debts, forces a conversation regarding the standard of right and wrong. It forces a conversation regarding the standard of right and wrong. Jesus is teaching people how to pray. This should be the the form of how you commune with God. 
And in this invitation to consistent life-giving prayer, he inserts this line of forgive us our debts. And the implication there is there's actually a standard of right and wrong that we have failed to meet and that we need forgiveness for. Does that make sense? Praise God for the response. Part of the dynamic of a standard of right and wrong, it forces us to have honest conversation with how we interact with that standard of right and wrong. What the text brings to the surface is that a frequent interaction looks like Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. In other words, there is a reversal of what is obvious and true and a replacement of a clear standard with their own. To make make sure that they didn't lose that, that they weren't lost in the poetry of that, you drop down to verse 24 and it reads this. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. In other words, the rejection of God's standard also showed up as a redefining of it. The exchange, calling something good when it is clearly evil and calling something evil when it's actually good. Practically, God has a standard and so do we. And when those truths collide, who wins out? Southwest A-Leaf, Texas, born and raised. It's an area in Houston similar to Little Haiti. It's an area in Miami. I'm a little, you know. Grateful for the SWAT. I think it's the best place to live, although I don't want to ever live there. Amen. And we've produced people, not me. Amen. Humility. Rashard Lewis, if you're a Miami Heat fan, he came from us. You're welcome. That's a throwback, Miami Heat days. But we also produced this guy by the name of Toby Nwigwe. Amen. Nigerians do it better. It's just in us. Toby has juice right now in the music scene. And part of the juice he had came with this song, and I, and I don't mean this disparaging to Toby, Ebo Quint. I don't mean this in a disparaging way, but the song was Try Jesus. Maybe you've heard it. Try Jesus, but not me. Because I throw hands. Try Jesus. Please don't try me. Because I fight. Oh, I know what he said. About getting slapped. But if you touch me or mine, we're going to have to scrap. So try Jesus. Please don't try me. Because I throw hands. 
Oh, I know what he said about turning the other cheek. But that's one part of the Bible that don't sit right with me. So try Jesus. Please don't try me. Because I fight. And that resonates with a lot of us. We're like, yes. Try Jesus. Don't try me. Because I fight. But that latter part, I know what he says about turning the other cheek, but that's one part of the Bible that doesn't sit right with me. That resonates with all of us. Because we all have parts of the scripture we believe are actually suggestions and selective. So it's like, hmm, I don't like that. Get out of there. I don't like that. Cross that out. I don't like that. That's not what he really means. Every single one of us, we have what is known as respectable sins. The sins that we're comfortable with because we've altered God's standard. I wasn't speeding. I was following the flow of traffic. We all have it. And our respectable sins reveal our self-righteousness. Because we've created a new standard that we hold ourselves to and others to as well. So I am comfortable with you stealing money from the government. Take those welfare checks, that welfare EBT card, and then you, get, you stand in line at Publix and you're like, listen, let me buy that for you. Give me the cash. Which is stealing. So I'm comfortable with you doing that because you got to get it how you live. You got to feed your family. But I am uncomfortable with the person who is committing insider trading, see Martha Stewart. We all have that. We all have respectable sins, but the thing is, we're also all skilled at redefining God's standards. It's all wrong. This first line, forgive us our debts, invites an honest conversation with the standard of right and wrong. Is it a standard that is fluid and situational? Is it a standard that is rooted in my emotions or my historic cultural location, i.e., where I grew up? Or is there something outside of me that is solid and strong and unchanging that could actually be a standard to live by? God says, there is my words. Continuing in and comfort with our respectable sins is akin to breathing in carbon monoxide. Carbon monoxide is tasteless, it's odorless, and it's poisonous. When we continue in and we're comfortable with our respectable sins, the products of redefining God's standards, we are slowly but surely 
poisoning our soul. And often it's unknowingly. And one of the most sobering realities that God lays in front of us is that sin is what God says it is. But not only is sin what God says it is, which ultimately is faithlessness, disbelief that leads to disobedience, that is the primary way that we're meant to understand sin. So I'm not taking him at his word, whatever that is, in whatever area he says. Faithlessness. Sin isn't just what God says it is. Sin does what God says it does. Which is why as you continue to explore the dynamics, we're invited not just to interact with what we believe about sin and the standard of right and wrong. We're not, we're not just forced to that conversation. We're forced to another conversation, which is the effects of sin in our lives, the effects of sin in our relationships, first and foremost, starting with God, but secondarily starting with others. And I, I use the sequence, although again, they're symbiotic. And the reason we know this to be true, that this is, this is part of the conversation Jesus is drawing us into when he's calling us to pray is, he's not saying, ask God for forgiveness for God's benefit. God, I just, I'm coming before you and I wanna give you the opportunity to forgive me so that you could be well within your soul. Does that mean, like he's, he's not... He is not challenging people to this level of sincerity because God's going to benefit from it. He is, he is calling people to this level of deep heart, soul, spiritual surgery that translates into confession that's coming because of the effects of sin in us. Let me give you a few of them. Isaiah 59, one through two. Isaiah, we're in there a lot today. He says this, behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save or his ear dull that it cannot hear. Nothing's wrong with God. <laughs> That's the short of it. God is perfect and beautiful and strong and capable and glorious and generous and kind. There's no deficiencies in him. But, contrast, he's pivoting, but your iniquities, sin, <laughs> your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. The psalmist continues with this thought, Psalm 66, 18, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, sin, if I if I clung to it, if I held on to it, if I thought that this was valuable, if I cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. One of the primary effects of sin is the separation that it brings. It dulls the senses to the extent of the separation. Now, this is for the person who doesn't know God, and this is for the person who does know God. That sin has a separating effect that is embedded to it. 
It's not the only thing it brings. It only brings separation where there's now, there's now distance where there was closeness. Jeremiah 12, 13. They have sown wheat. This is him talking to the people of God particularly. They have sown wheat and have reaped thorns. They have tired themselves out, but profit nothing. Have you ever seen a rocking horse? We don't actually have those in rooms anymore because it's kind of like dated, it's old fashioned. But rocking horses, like they move back and forth, but they actually never go anywhere. So it's a lot of activity without progress. That's what he's getting at. There's a lot of activity here. There's a lot of work here. There's a lot of energy being expended, but it's fruitless. They shall be ashamed of their harvest because of the fierce anger of the Lord, the fierce anger of the Lord that is attached to their willing disregard of him, their sin. What's drawn from Jeremiah 12 is this picture of self-sabotage, particularly for the believer. That sin doesn't just create separation It creates this sense of self-sabotage. Christian, maybe the efforts that you are expending that are consistently frustrated. I don't mean on some, sometimes you have to open a window to open a door type, you know what I mean? That's an obscure cultural reference, new magic wand. But maybe the frustrated efforts that we constantly run into is a reflection of the faithlessness in our hearts. That maybe we're fatigued and our efforts in life are frustrated because sin is at work in us. It's separation, it's self-sabotage. And in the one we like to hang over people Beat him over the head with it. Romans 6. It brings death. Whenever sin is present, something always dies. Always. Often, it's the relationship. Did you know that rarely, 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 relationships die from natural causes? Rarely. Most relationships die from sin at work. Bitterness, resentment, envy, greed, covetousness, lust, pride, you name it. Beans, greens, you name it. Here lies another relationship buried in the ground because of pride in the heart. Whenever sin is present, something always dies, and that something is typically the relationship, whether it's a relationship with God or it's a relationship with other people. But that something isn't just a relationship. What God says about sin in our lives is that something is a someone, and that someone is us. That when sin is at work in us, it reflects that we are actually dying. We're dead. And so this line, this line Forgive us our debts. It draws out a conversation regarding the standard of right and wrong. And it draws out a conversation 
regarding the effects of sin in our lives lead into this conclusion that sin is what God says it is and it does what God says it will do. But then it also draws our attention to the weight and the beauty of pardon and confession. Make no mistake, Jesus is saying, confess your sin. Asking for forgiveness necessitates the confession of sin. Now, this isn't like if you've ever seen Game of Thrones, confess, confess, right? With Cersei, and then you walk down, shame, shame. This ain't that. Where's confession for the purpose of shaming? This is confession for the purpose of soul healing. We know that to be true because one of the effects of sin that is greatest is lodged into unconfessed sin. This is Psalm 32. For when I kept silent, so I knew I did wrong, but I just kind of tucked that voice in the back. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Say la. Proverbs 28. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. 1 John 1, 8, 10. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Unconfessed sin in our lives corrodes our relationship with God. And it corrodes our relationship with other people. created two playlists in the last three weeks. One of the playlists is called Black is a Vibe. The second of the playlists was called Jazz is a Mood. Now, the reason I created this playlist was because we had a conversation with our kids and we were listening to music, background music, house music when we're eating dinner. If you've ever come over, you know it's usually in the background. And um, one song came out by Stevie Wonder um, and, and they were like, who is that? It, and I'm not going to say who they thought it was because I was ashamed. I felt like all of the ancestors were side-eyed in us, right? And so immediately, me and Diamond locked eyes, and we're like, oh, we're going to fix this. And so we created a playlist. So much so, I was like, I'm going to have you go to sleep to this bad boy. No joke. One of our kids was like, Dad, I can't do this anymore. Please, please put back on sleep sounds. I'm sorry. I repent for all of my sin. I'll never confuse Stevie Wonder with fill in the blank again. But... On one of the playlists, there was this song by B.B. King, The Thrill Is Gone. It's a powerful song. Speaks of this intimacy that has faded away. I'm not going to sing it. I already did it with Toby. But man, I was listening to that song this week as I was reading through his text. And I was like, man, I wonder. As I'm staring, I've been pastoring for a long time now. And I'm staring at some people who have walked with Jesus. They traveled the world. They were on fire. 
send me, I'll go. And I'm watching a slew of people walk away from Jesus. I'm watching a slew of people quietly quit. I'm watching the highest of highs replaced with the lowest of lows. And I just thought to myself, I wonder if the thrill is gone because of unconfessed sin. I know that's true for me. I know it's true for me to just plow through and do work for God with your heart disconnected, putting my spiritual life on the shelf because stuff needs to get done, sermons need to get prepared, money needs to get raised, counseling needs to take place, all the while working in the flesh, not the spirit. And the Christian life can't be lived that way. But when unconfessed sin is rooted in our hearts and there's now distance and self-sabotage is happening, I wonder that if you're in here right now and B.B. King, he's like fresh for you. The thrill is gone with Jesus. I wonder if the absence of deep, meaningful affections could be tied to the presence of hidden, unconfessed sin. If so, this petition is yours. It is an invitation to courageous, consistent, full-throated confession. And because this is a corporate prayer, this is ours. That isn't just individually, but collectively we cry out, God, forgive us. This is the story of the people of God. We're consistently, you get Nehemiah, you get Ezra, you get these people who recognize that sin is pervasive in their community. And what they do is they stand up as representatives of their entire community and they say, God, forgive us. It's not just the individuals. So if you're in here, you're like, I don't got no unconfessed sin. Still, God forgive us. And in this corporate cry of confession, we are calling God into our presence to say, do work. Make us right again. Biblical confession involves contrition. You actually feel sad. Biblical confession involves conviction. There's a standard that now you realize you've broken. Biblical confession involves confidence that God actually pardons. Psalm 32 again, I acknowledge my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, ergo, as a result of this, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at the time when you may be found. That means don't wait. Don't wait to the right time. The right time to confess is when you're aware that you've made a mistake. That's the right situation and circumstance. It's not let me set the mood right, let me butter people up. That's manipulation. The right time to confess is when I realize I've made a mistake. 
And the assurance of pardon produces comprehensive, consistent confession. I close with this. Biblical confession, it, it involves contrition, right? So I feel deeply. It involves conviction, right? There's a standard that I'm now relating to rightly that's causing me to feel what I feel and then respond accordingly. It involves confidence that, wait, if, if I actually confess, there's, there's, there's pardon, there's forgiveness, there's restoration of relationship. But it also involves renewed commitment. It involves renewed commitment. This is, this is Ezra chapter 10. Now then, make confession to the Lord. And this is what he says after that. The God of your fathers and do his will. See what he did there? He wedded confession. I love Ezra. He wedded confession. And this was corporate confession, by the way. He wedded confession with a renewed commitment to do that which God says. It's repentance. Turning from and turning towards. This is why Paul, Paul picks up on this idea, by the way, in, in 1 Corinthians, in, in, well, 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 17, 7, he says this. Godly grief produces a repentance. That's the sorrow that's bound in confession. So now I'm sorrowful, but then I move to action. I'm repenting. And it's repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. In other words, you can be sincerely sad, but if that sadness isn't connected to meaningful action, which in this case is renewed commitment to God, it's going to lead to death. I'll say that again. You could be sincerely sad, but if that sadness is not connected to meaningful action, which in this case is renewed commitment to God, it's going to lead to death. Whether that's death because you keep trying to make things right and you can't. But when you renew your commitment to God, grace floods you from the inside out, and now you're living out of his power, not your own. So now I approach relationships differently because I'm approaching God differently. And I cannot say I've repented or I'm confessing without also saying I don't want to do this anymore. They go hand in hand. This is your moment. I'm going to pray. Pastors and leaders are going to be in the back, and they're going to be able to pray with you. This is your first step of flourishing, confession. And I'm not talking about like what, you know, what happens in other spaces where it's manipulative, you know, or where, you know, you kind of sit behind a wall. I'm not trying to shame Catholicism in that regard, because there's a lot that Catholics get right that Protestants don't. So I'm not trying to force anything, but what I am saying is this is your moment to go be free. Just go lay it before the Lord. But but understand that this is not merely the casting off of burdens. It is the taking on of beauty. That when we confess, we are laying down sin and its effects in our lives and the burdens that it brings. But when we get up, we are taking on grace and beauty and the gift of Jesus Christ on our shoulders. It's a cross. 
We are taking on closeness with God because the sin is moved away. And we are reminded of the seriousness of sin, so much so where Jesus died. But we are reminded of the greatness of forgiveness, so much so where Jesus died. And so we are laying down burdens and we are taking up beauty. So you go to the back and you confess to the Lord and to others if you so choose. Or you stay in your seat and you confess, go through a Rolodex and have that heart of David in Psalm 139 that search me, search me and show me. You go to the Lord in confession. This is your first step. Some of you know what's coming next week or you think you know. It doesn't matter if we don't get this right. I want restored relationships with people on a hor- like a horizontal way, but I mean, vertically, we got to get this right. Forgive us. It invites honest conversation regarding how we perceive sin, the respectable sins we have, and our capacity to creatively redefine what God says. It begs a conversation regarding the effects of sin in our lives where Jesus is inviting us to confess, not because God is benefited by it, but because we'll be. And then it causes us to actually do the words. Ask for forgiveness, which is involving meaningful confession. Take this opportunity. Pray with me. Father, Don't let Satan steal our moment with second guessing and fear. Tools he's frequent and familiar with. God, I think about the the depths of the cross. really died. Such a statement of love. You really died. God, will we not minimize that the death of Jesus Christ is not merely this dramatic statement of love. It is an emphatic statement of the grotesque reality of sin. And how even the son of heaven had to deal with it for our sakes. And so God, would we we find freedom in the fact that you see, that you know, and that you invite confession because you're standing ready to forgive, it's your choice, you made it. Will we make the choice to receive it by choosing to confess in your name?